good morning, everybody. Uh, we have uh, Colleen Parker here in the front who's going to pray for us, and then we'll get started as soon as she gets the gum out of her mouth. Oh, I'm not used to microphone. Okay. Um. Father, thank you for being our Father. And Jesus, thank you for being our Savior. And Father, thank you for sending the Spirit of truth for us and in us that to remind us of everything. Thank you for watching. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? All right. Nice to see you all. How many uh, new people do we have today? The only reason I'm asking. Uh, we have some extra handouts that we would like you to have, so Cindy will bring them to you if okay. we have enough. You didn't know you were going to do that, but... Yes, you could. And these are. And these are used only oh to send to uh, for this class. We're not uh, going to appeal for funds or. Although, if you have extra money and. <laughs> okay, nice to see you all. And if you recall, um, at the end of last week's class. Uh, at the end of last week's class, I gave a little bit of an illustration to help us feel uh, what the letter of Hebrews is really all about. And I'm going to do it again, take a couple of minutes, and then I want you to just relax and ask any questions that you have. We want to take a little bit of time at the beginning of class to, you know, anchor this notion down. And then uh, my good friend Zev is going to come and teach on uh, Hebrews 1, and I'm very excited about what you're going to hear today. Uh, okay, we'll start with uh, Moses. But all, actually, I, I really want to start with the world. Um, if, if you have the handout that I gave to you last week, and uh, that 
said a uh, historical analogy that helps us understand the letter of Hebrews. It is very clear in the scriptures that from the beginning of time, God has spoken to human beings through creation. This is very clear in the Bible. Uh, It is a matter of scholarly and academic dispute as to when the human race actually began. When was the first human? When did people become human? Uh, You could go back 50,000 years if you want to be in current uh, scientific uh, harmony. Uh, Many conservative Christians want to go back 7,000 years. That's not the point. The point is, Moses didn't receive a written revelation from God until 1445, 44 BCE, in my view. That's how many years ago? About 3,500. Uh, There are some scholars that put it earlier around 1,200. That, again, is irrelevant. The point is that human beings lived on this earth far longer without a written revelation than they have had a written revelation. And the scriptures are very clear. God spoke to human beings through both the cosmos, the creation, and also the implanted law that God put upon the heart of every human being that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that the work of the law has been engraved upon their hearts. Their conscience is agreeing or convicting them as the case may be. So God did not live, leave our ancestors all over the world without hope. God spoke to them. And X amount of them, a percentage of them, responded to this revelation, and they embraced the notion of monotheism or the fact that there is one true and living God. It is true that other human beings had other theological concepts. So when we get to Moses, what we have now is not something that replaces this because this has gone on to be God's witness to all people all through the world. But now we have a written book that specifies in great detail uh, exactly what the character of God is and what God expects out of human beings. And that went on for, as we say, 1,475 years until the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came along. I bought this for my mom in Israel I'm not much into, uh, you know, Jesus iconographic stuff, but this is pretty cool, made out of olive wood. And um, when Jesus came, many people are misunderstanding of this, he didn't throw the law away, he didn't reject it, he said he came to fulfill it and enhance it, and so it got folded into the person of Jesus. Now, you understand this, we're moving from what, a book? To what? To a person, to a risen person. And of course, the whole thesis of the New Testament is that person, that living person that we celebrated last week lives inside of each one of us. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Jesus what? Lives in me, yes. And so what Christ did was take all of the essence, the holiness of the law, and bring it to us inside of us and now gives us the power that we can live this out. Okay, so now we go on another 600 years and this is a fact of history. Muhammad comes along and publishes a book called the Quran. How many of you have chosen to look at this, read it? All right. You haven't read it all, but you've spent some time on it. Good for you. Most (coughs) Americans haven't. Um, In this book... 
This is what the Quran says. They denied the truth and uttered a monstrous falsehood against Mary. They declared the they there are the Christians. We have put to death the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the apostle of God. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. So here at the core and the heart of the Quran, we have this central notion that Jesus did not really die. That somebody that looked like him. Which makes sense, because one of his followers was named Thomas, right? And in his Greek nickname, does anyone know it? Didymus. What, is, what, is, what does Didymus mean? Thomas Didymus. Thomas the twin. He had a twin. So it was very, you know, if you hung, hang around with twins, you could see how plausible it would be. Odd, somebody that looked like Jesus, they put his twin up on the cross, and then he got away. Uh, Muhammad thought it would be unbelievable and not possible for God to ever allow such a great prophet as Jesus to be crucified on a cross like a common criminal. So if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then what? Then he didn't rise from the dead. And then if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Did we study this last week? If Christ did not rise, what does Paul say clearly? Our hope is in vain. We're still in our sins. So this would be the death blow to Christianity. So you see from an inside Islamic point of view, what they believe is they have corrected the errors, although there is some truth in Christianity, and they have corrected the errors in the Tanakh or the Torah, although there is some truth there. And now what we have in the Quran is the full-blown final revelation of God that, the, that, you, that incorporates the best of these traditions but issues the final correction. Now, that's a shocking concept to come up against, but the reason I'm telling you this is, you understand before Muhammad came along, in effect, that's what Christianity, the implications of the Christian message did for Judaism, right? Because what did the early Christians say about the Jewish law? He fulfilled it, Keep going. Remember, you're in a Presbyterian church. You're supposed to know this. <laughs> yeah. The law doesn't save. What does it really do? It points us to Jesus because if you really drill into the law, Paul says it doesn't save you. It shows you how much you need a Savior. It reveals to us our sin. You guys are aware of this, right? Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 7. Even weirder, Paul says in Romans 7, that the law incites the sin inside of us, actually stirs it up, actually makes it want to come out more, just like when you tell teenagers not to do something. Are you listening to me? <laughs> uh, and so... Um, Yes, uh, and then when, you know, when the Jewish people first heard this, oh, well, no, this doesn't save you. This points you to Jesus. Wow, it's a, a, a crushing, almost initially crushing uh, worldview shift that one has to go through. Okay, so I want Christians today in the 21st century to at least understand that if you can feel what the implications are of Islam to the Christian faith, you can start to feel and understand what it would be like to be in the first century to be Jewish and to get the message of Christ and then receive a letter 
like the letter of Hebrews, which was written to Jewish people who had initially confessed faith in Christ, but then because of a number of factors, persecution, loss of economy, uh, excisement from the Jewish community because they were now holding a a variant view that, that some Jews didn't like, all of these factors were causing their faith to be stressed and tested. Uh, this isn't like uh, the modern 20th, 21st century, your best life now, uh, and uh, everything's going to go well if you become a Christian. These Jewish people became believers in Jesus and then entered into a period of persecution and hardship. So you can see why it would be natural for somebody to say, well, maybe we made a mistake when we left the law. You could see that, right? Okay, having said all of that, who wants to ask a couple of questions before Zeb teaches? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm one of those that believe that human race artists didn't die. Okay. Now, did God put it on their hearts? His his ideas and his... Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, For the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that have been made, even God's eternal power and divine nature so that humans are without excuse. That's from Romans 1. Paul says this. So this has been going on from the beginning of time immemorial. And the cool thing is now that we live in, well, now we have this, all humans have this. And of course, if you're a Christian here today, you have him living inside of you. But we also have what? We have, well, yes, I'm, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit all come to live inside of the Christian. And we also have the additional information that Christians call what? The, um, the newer Testament. The n- and so this functions to the Older Testament. The newer Testament functions to the Older Testament the way that the Quran claims to function to the Bible. But from, uh, from an inside the Christian faith point of view, yeah, we are living in the best possible time that you could live because you have God's revelation in nature, you have the living Christ living inside of you, and then when you want to uh, clarify things, you have an inspired document that you can look into, the Newer Testament, and enhance your understanding of Jesus as a person. So yes, you should, you should count on that. When you're talking to not yet Christians, you should count on the fact that unrelentingly, God's speaking to them through creation and God is speaking to them through their conscience, through the engraved law in their hearts. And also the Holy Spirit is, is working uh, with them to persuade them of their sin, of righteousness, and judgment to lead them to Christ. Jesus said that's been going on. The Holy Spirit's role is to persuade people and to bring them into faith in Christ. So count on that among your friends, that God's doing that, even though they might say, ah, I don't believe any of that stuff. Yes, this is the, the heart of uh, us when we're not at our best, when Paul says we're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But it's hard to fight against God, isn't it? That's what, that's what God said, that's what Jesus said to uh, Paul. Uh, do you remember that? How hard it is for you to kick against the goads the goads, I'd quote it in the King James, but you'd be offended. What are the goads? The, the, you, the things that you stick into the back end of an animal to get it to move along when it doesn't want to move. And the Lord Jesus has been doing what to Paul for some time at that point? Goading and sticking him with the claims of Christ, and he's been doing what? Fighting. 
This happens to all humans. Count on it. Romans 7. Yeah, go back and look at it. It's one of the things that we don't talk about it too much because I think some people are afraid to make, you know, no one wants to speak against the Torah and the law as if it's a bad thing. But it, it you know, um, it's a good thing to come to self-realization. This is God's point of view. It's a good thing to know who you really are in the sight of God. And it's not fun. So when you look at the law and you realize, yeah, this is what I've done, and then you, then you actually get ideas about what more you could do. <laughs> I don't think a lot of preachers want to tell people that, but I mean, having said that, uh, uh, that's the point of it, to actually stir it up because God wants you to realize how bad, we, how bad off we are without him, without God's grace. And so once that stirring up occurs and you see this roiling sin pocket inside of you, uh, as Paul says in Galatians, then the law brings you as a schoolmaster, a tutor to, to lead you to Christ so that when you come to Christ, yes, I need you because not only can't I keep the law, when I try to keep the law, I actually want to do more sinful things. You've gotten over that. God, God bless you. Okay. Who else? Yes, sir. He's old. Too old. Yes. Well, they're first of all they're uh, Islamic. Um, when you say they're going after everybody, well. Um, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't be able to give you uh, an inside, uh, what they call a, uh, an emic view of the ISIS worldview. There are passages in the Quran, if you carefully select them, that could make that sort of behavior seem justifiable inside of their worldview. It's a minority view. Uh, the best that uh, the scholars, the Islamic scholars and the religious scholars of the world say that less than 10% of the followers of Islam are of that mindset, uh, radicalized to the place where they would be willing to do those things. 10%. I think it's probably closer to 5. But let's say it is 10. How many uh, Muslims in the world today? Fastest growing religion in the world? 1.7 billion. So 10% of that is 1.7 billion. If it was even 1% of that, that would be 170 million people who get up in the morning and believe it is their God-directed duty to wage jihad and to use violence to do it and to bring in Sharia law and to bring in the caliphate that will rule the world because they are following a theocratic vision. They think Allah should rule the entire world. And so if that would ever come to pass and they would have their way, you as a person of the book would be probably allowed to live uh, if you didn't smart off too bad and if you were a decent Christian and if you were willing to not teach against Islam. Okay, and that would go for the Jews too. But if you started trying to convert followers of Islam or preach against it, then they would consider you to be. No, they believe their mission is to destroy to the point where they can establish the caliphate and the Sharia law all over the world and bring in the Islamic theocracy so that Allah rules the world. Okay.
Uh, that's a way of looking at it, and Sue Campbell isn't here today, but she wrote me a long letter. Uh, she usually comes to this class, and it, it, in effect, that's what she was, you know, getting at. That yes, they, uh, they, uh, it's a, a choice and a natural power. They don't have the ideas of grace and God living inside of them the way that Christians do. So yes, they're going to bring in this uh, uh, Sharia law through their own efforts. And uh, the most radical of them believe, based on texts in the Quran, which is true, they're there, that it's okay to use violence when it's justifiable to bring in uh, Sharia law. So, <coughs> growing up in a small town surrounded by white people, I don't know exactly what anti-Semitism is. Okay. Uh, Ricky's question is, growing up in a small town, uh, leave it to Beaver, no Jews, probably not very many people of color. Um, so uh, what is anti-Semitism? Um, it's, a, it's a settled state of mind uh, that is against Jewish people, usually uh, predicated upon the premise that Jewish people are in some sort of a cabal, a conspiracy to run and rule the world. Um, it really got started in the Middle Ages for, for sure, got the fuel back then, because the Christian church read in the Torah that said you shall not lend money to your brothers at, at interest, usury. How many of you practice usury, pra interest? <laughs> Try to run a modern world without interest. And so in the, in the Torah, it says if your brother, if, if your Jewish brother needs money, you just give it to him. You don't charge him interest. And by the way, I could use like $50,000. <laughs> Okay, so having said that, then when the Christians read that, they were like, well, if God didn't want us to run money, to, if he didn't want the Jews to do it, maybe we shouldn't do that either. So, yeah, try to run an economy, economy with no interest. You can do it in a tribal context, but not in a modern world. So what did they do? They said, well, let's make the Jews do it because they're pretty good at stuff like this. So they made the Jews become the bankers because it wasn't a sin for them to do it. Got it? So it just turned out that Jews are good at this. And you wind up producing creatures like the Rothschilds who own, you know, monstrous amounts of money and could lend it out to people. Well, then when things are times are tough and hard and you see your Jewish neighbor down the street doing well and you're not doing well, you could see how that oh, those Jews, they, they're in some sort of conspiracy together. And no one knew that the, the church made them do that. Now, this is one of the principal ways that anti-Semitism really got fueled and fired. Uh, so it's just a settled predisposition that if you're Jewish, it's very similar to the way uh, things played out in our country um, with the black and white thing. Um, if you're black, well, then you're out, you know, from a white point of view. We don't want anything to do with you. That's... You, you want to talk about it? Yeah, you're more, you, you, you probably have some. <laughs> I've had a little more experience with this. I think one thing that may help um, is that a lot of people have, I think, a misconception about racism in this country, that they tend to think of it in terms of prejudice and discrimination against people of color, Whereas what people of color would tell you is the problem is not so much prejudice and discrimination as the social system of white privilege. 
We swim in an ocean of white privilege, and we're not aware of it because we swim in it like fish in water. It's natural to us, and therefore we're not aware of the ways in which our privileged access to resources, to power, to things like that, how that comes across to people of color. What I'd suggest is that basically from a Jewish perspective, where you experience anti-Semitism in the United States is because we have a cultural system of Christian privilege. So, for example, um, I am quite used to the fact I grew up, you know, in the United States, and, of course, the whole thing is, you know, spring break around Easter, Christmas you're off, but what do you do about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the other Jewish holidays? I went to a high school... It was about 30% Jewish, but we didn't have off for the Jewish holidays. Instead, you had to line up at the attendance office with your excuse slip after the Jewish holidays so that you could uh, take off in order to observe your faith. Uh, You had to ask for special Sunday administrations of the SATs and other standardized tests because they normally do it on the Sabbath. Things like that, just, you know, and, and Gentiles just are not even aware of that, okay? What you're constantly experiencing is a society that is set up to privilege Christians and disadvantage Jews. That's where it comes from. The other thing, of course, is there is the, the fact that once Christianity began to be a legal religion one of the things that they began to do is to turn around and discriminate against Jews and introduce legislation that was specifically discriminatory. And one of the things that um, was very unfortunate was the preaching of one of the great saints of the Christian church, St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means golden mouth, who was the uh, uh, patriarch of Constantinople and who invented the term for the Jews, the Christ killers. And don't laugh, because essentially that is for almost 1,700 years the way a lot of Christians have viewed Jews. The Jews are responsible for the killing of Christ. And... uh, you know, from a Jewish perspective, it was very interesting when Pope John XXIII absolved the Jews of guilt for the death of Christ. And our idea is, thank you for absolving us of what we were never guilty of in the first place. And, you know, it was sort of a thanks but no thanks thing. Because even in the effort to overcome anti-Semitism, from a Jewish perspective, it's almost as if you're perpetuating the very anti-Semitism you're trying to overcome. Yeah. That's right. As a matter of fact, that's one thing my father once. Uh, that's one thing my father once pointed out to a Christian. Says, "What if we hadn't?" <laughs> you know, or what if the Romans hadn't? Yeah. Well, one of the things that is um, where that plays out, oddly enough, is in the whole issue of how much reparations does does Germany owe to the state of Israel. 
and the Holocaust survivors. And Germany has paid enormous sums of money uh, to Holocaust survivors and their descendants, but the claims go even further. They're, right now, what's the film that is coming out with Helen Mirren? Um, yeah, okay. About the woman who basically sued to try to get back her family's portrait, a portrait of her aunt that was one of the great classics of modern European painting by Gustav Klimt. And, um, you know, it's, yeah, I think that is a perfect analogy. It's, um, any other? Okay. All right. Okay. My turn. All righty. Now, I think you should have been able to pick up a couple of handouts. But before I get into that, I just wanted to do a very quick review of the last slide I presented because I want you to, first of all, keep in mind everything that John has said because what you've got here is a letter that was written to a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jewish Christian community that is in danger of lapsing back under pressure to Judaism and giving up faith in Christ. And the whole purpose of the letter is to try to hold these people faithful to the gospel. And sort of as part of their background, certain elements of Hellenistic Judaism have to be kept in mind. And I pointed out four. First of all, that there is an unchanging heavenly realm that is far more real than the changeable earthly realm. This goes with that very much Greek notion that that which is unchanging and eternal and ideal is therefore more real than something that changes. And that the earthly realm therefore contains mere copies or shadows or types of the heavenly archetypes. Very much a Platonic notion, but it's something that is pervasive in a lot of Greek culture and something that you will find uh, that plays a major role in the letter to the Hebrews. Again, that all earthly events, including those of the last days, are already realized in the heavenly realm. In other words, you have an idea that uh, since God is eternal, which means God is outside of time, all of time, past, present, and future, is in effect already realized in an eternal now in the heavens. And what we're going through now in history is just the working out of that. And then finally, the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. That just the surface or historical sense or the literal sense of Scripture, that is just, if you will, the outer sense of Scripture. You've got to delve deeper, that it has deeper and deeper levels of meaning that you constantly need to dig for. Are there any questions about what we covered there? Yeah. Uh, okay, that's, thank you for that question, because that's very important. The letter to the Hebrews 
is clearly reflecting the background of Hellenistic Judaism. What's different in Jerusalem is that, in fact, Hellenism was thrown out, by and large, you know, to a great extent, with the Maccabean Revolt that took place in the second century before the Common Era. And therefore, there is a tendency to be a little more antagonistic to Greek culture. A second thing that's happening in Jerusalem is that you're having the origins of the rabbinic tradition. Okay? And this, the letter to the Hebrews shows almost no awareness of, let alone interest in, what would become the rabbinic tradition of Judaism. So, what we're talking about here, again, what you need to realize is that you cannot talk in the first century about Judaism in the singular. You have to talk about Judaisms. And there were multiple. It was, in fact, far more diverse in the Jewish world than it is even today where you've got orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, you know. Think of it as a diverse, you know, if you talk about Christianity. I mean, how many denominations and divisions of Christianity do we have? It was almost as diverse at that time. So what we're, yeah. Um, well, let's put it this way. Uh, to a great extent, yes, because the, um, the basic language of the Gentile world into which Christianity spread was Greek. Okay, not the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. And therefore, basically, it was moving into the Hellenistic cultural framework. After the blow-up in Antioch over eating, you know, between Jews and Gentiles, when Paul decided, I'm going to take my mission to the Gentiles, he had to leave Antioch, basically, because he lost the argument with Peter at that time. And where did he go? He went to the Aegean Basin. Okay, and he was basically... Preaching and teaching and organizing and planting churches in the Aegean Basin, which was this kind of Hellenistic Judaism that the Judaism was involved in. Now, the, the ground of this is in Alexandria. That was, the heart, that was the heart of Hellenistic Judaism. And when you look at the letter to the Hebrews, there's a whole lot of discussion. Who wrote it? For whom? Uh, I, John and I are of one mind in this, that our th we think the strongest possible candidate for who wrote the letter to the Hebrews was that it was Apollos of Alexandria. And therefore, this is the world out of which he came into Christian faith. So it's very important for understanding the letter to the Hebrews, and to a great extent for the later doctrinal development of Christianity. Okay? Your handouts, you should have two pages from John's material um, about the letter to the Hebrews. And there's one that says, Christ in the Tanakh as cited in the letter to the Hebrews, and it's page 10. Okay. Now, 
I'm not going to go through this whole thing with you. Aren't you glad? Instead, I'm just going to go through that first horizontal line of boxes. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to put you to work. So uh, could I have someone here who is willing to read, read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. All right, volunteer. Wait for the microphone, please. Oh, okay. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay. All right, does this remind you of any other passages in Scripture that you may have heard from time to time? Ah, okay, thank you. And would you like to read uh, for us John 1? I don't think you need to read all 1 through 18. How far? What I'd like you you to read is John 1. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Okay. All right. That that sounds awfully similar, doesn't it? Uh, What similarities and differences would you say you heard there? Any parallels? The word. Okay. Okay. God has spoken through the Son. Oh, okay. Well, I just happened to grab the blue. Okay, other? Ah, creator. Okay, I think we could probably get quite a few more. I was going to use the blue because blue and white is particularly Jewish colors, you know. Okay, the other passage I wanted you to look at before we really delve into Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Anyone care to read that for us? 
Okay. visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay. Again, some of the same themes. Anything added new there that you heard? Firstborn of all creation. Okay, any other? We're running out of space on the board. That's one of the reasons I write sloppy. Okay, what I would like to do now is really break this down. We're going to basically break down Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. How many people here, most of us I think are probably of a sufficient age as I am, that you remember something that they probably don't teach in school anymore called diagramming sentences? Okay. Well, in a sense, what we're going to be doing is a kind of a diagramming of sentences. And so, what I want to do is phrase by phrase, not necessarily in the order in which it appears, I want to basically break down this entire passage in Hebrews, these three verses, because it's incredibly packed. It's incredibly packed. It's a very dense text. But it's important because, in effect, it will introduce literally every theme that the letter to the Hebrews will talk about throughout the whole letter. First of all, he begins in the first verse talking about past revelation. The reason I mention sentence, and di- uh, sentence diagramming is what is the basic subject and predicate? God spoke. Okay, God spoke. That's the first thing. We are dealing here with a clear-cut understanding that God is a God who speaks and that God spoke. Notice the past tense. Okay. To our ancestors... Okay, who are our ancestors that the letter is concerned about? What is he talking about? God spoke to our ancestors. The Jews. Okay, the children of Israel. Okay. By the prophets. Okay, God spoke through the instrument of prophets to our ancestors, the people of Israel, Okay. Long ago. When did prophecy come to an end in Judaism? This is debatable. 
But for most Jews, who were the last of the prophets? Anyone know? Not Daniel. Daniel's not considered a prophetic work in Judaism, by the way. Malachi is the last of them. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Thank you, Joe. Okay. And when were they active? In the 5th century before the Common Era. Maybe into the 4th. Okay, so we are definitely talking about a long period of prophetic silence. At many times, now what is, uh, some of you may have other versions instead of at many times. Does someone here have the King James Version? What does it say? Yeah? In many and various ways, okay. In times past. At sundry times. Okay. What does it mean to say that God spoke at many times in the past? What does that give you? What new information does at many times give you? What does that say about how God spoke in the past? Well, yeah. There was consistency, but what else was there? What? He's persistent. Different context, which means what? Ah! different pieces of it. God spoke at many times, and each time were you getting the whole picture? No. Each time you were just getting a piece of the picture. All of those occasions in the past where God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets were partial. You begin to see now the edge that this letter is bringing to this community. Because what you're talking about is everything that they've regarded as sacred. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, uh, all of these prophets. What you're saying is they didn't have the whole picture. None of them had the whole picture. And in many ways. How did God speak to the prophets in the past? Visions, dreams. What? Speaking to them? Yes, definitely. I happen to be one of those people who, despite my education in the historical critical methodology, says that when a prophet says, thus saith the Lord, and then has a statement, and then finishes it with the words of the Lord, I don't think he's saying, that's my best educated opinion. I really think that at that point he's claiming these are the very words of God. But that doesn't apply to everything that you find in the prophets. Okay? Joe? Ah, well, 
what is the, who is Moses? What is Moses? He's the chief of the prophets. Now we'll get to Moses in the next session because Moses requires special handling. But what he's saying in effect is even Moses didn't have the whole picture. And he didn't see it clearly. In other words, all of these past revelations Think of this. What you're saying, this is a community that is used to living by the scriptures of Tanakh. They may have it in the Greek version. Nevertheless, this is your Bible. And what is he saying? That was then. It's all a set of fragments, not completely clear at what was intended. Okay. But now, okay, that was then, this is now. I can't emphasize how much that contrast, that was then, this is now, you're used to that expression. How many people have heard that was then, this is now? Okay, this is crucial for understanding this entire letter. And imagine you're a first century devout Jewish follower of Jesus, yes, but you're being told all of that you have regarded as sacred, that was then, this is now. Something fundamental has changed. God has spoken. Now that's a little more definitive. God spoke, okay, God was in the habit of speaking, God did it all the time. But now, God has spoken. There is finality in this. There is real finality in this. To us, not to our ancestors, but to us. Okay? This is what is coming to us. In these last days. Okay? Now, don't get this mixed up with that apocalyptic notion of the last days. What he's saying is, that was then, in the past, to our ancestors, this is now, in these latter days. Okay? In other words, which is more up to date? This is much more up to date. By his son. And now we are talking about a whole new level. Not by prophets in various manners, through dreams and visions. God is speaking through a person. Through a person. Um, I've got to pause for a moment and get a little personal here. One of the things that unquestionably brought me back to Christianity is that no matter how much in Judaism you may have the understanding that God is a personal God, you don't really have a notion of God present in person. 
And one of the things that brought me back is that I needed a God with a human heart and a human face. One of the first moments in my first conversion to Judaism that was really significant for me, uh, I had been reading the New Testament and finding it fascinating. I like folk tales and mythology and stuff like that. I was just reading it for the magic of the story. I found Jesus compelling. I found that what I had here is, oh, so this is what happened to sectarian and apocalyptic Judaism and all these other things. But I was also reading Jewish history. But I set everything down, and all of a sudden, into my mind, there came an extremely vivid image. It was of a blood-red Celtic cross. And I understood this to signify God's incarnation in Christ. Now, at that time, you got to remember, I was a philosophy major. I would have told people, well, I don't believe in a personal God. I'm a Hegelian. Okay, I made the mistake of studying Hegel in an advanced seminar in my first year in college. It warped my mind. But at any rate, God is the, you know, is the result together with, the absolute is the result together with the process of its becoming. You know, not a personal. And here was the most personal possible understanding of God that Jesus was God in person. Right there, and all of my belief in the impersonality of God totally went out the window. Just totally went out the window. This is one of the key things that we are saying here in the letter to the Hebrews. And I think it's something that we need not be ashamed of, is the fact that the only really adequate revelation of a personal God is in a person. Now, all of that is talking about revelation, and the first part of the letter to the Hebrews is going to be talking about revelation and how revelation is now, we're talking in whole new terms. And so, a large part of what's going to happen in the next few chapters is demonstrating how this is far superior to anything that's taken place before. Okay? Superior to the prophets, superior to Moses. And we're running out of time. The person of the Son. Why is this important? How is it that God speaks through by His Son? He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, why is this important? How would this speak to a Jewish person? If you look through the Torah itself, how does God manifest to the people at large? Right, okay, what... I'm looking for something that's more constant than just at Mount Sinai. He's the light of the world. Ah! What did you say? He's the light of the world. The light of the... Okay. The glory of God appeared to them. Okay. And it appeared in the form of light in the clouds. Okay. This was the standard way in which God's presence and power and majesty were revealed to the people is the revelation of the glory of God. And what is Jesus saying? I mean, what is Hebrews saying? 
Who is Jesus? He is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, when the glory of God appeared to the ancestors in the desert, who was that? It was Jesus. It was the Son. That was who was revealed. Not in incarnate form, but that was the Son. And the exact imprint of his nature. What, is, what image does that sort of conjure up in your mind? What? Fingerprints. Fingerprints? Okay. Any other images? Stamp. stamp, thank you. In other words, a seal, like a stamp that you impress in the wax. In other words, there is a precise, exact, complete, total correspondence between Father and Son. In other words, Jesus is not only the very radiance of the glory of God, he is the one who perfectly expresses God's own nature. And that's why God can speak now by his Son in a way that is completely authoritative and unique. Now we have also, you pointed out, the work of the Son in creation. And here I'm just going to go through, we're really running out of time, so I want to go through quickly. Through whom God created the world, appointed the heir of all things. What does it mean to say that the Son is the heir of all things? What? He owns it all. Now, does the heir own it now? Okay, but what's going to happen? going to own it in the future, right? So what is this talking about? Jesus is the one through whom God created the world, and it's all going to end up his. The only question is, how do you want to end up Jesus' property? By glorifying God's mercy or by glorifying God's justice? And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What period is that speaking about? Look at the verb tense. Present. The Son as God's agent in creation means it's not just something that happened long ago. Past, present, future, all times, all places, all space... This is how creation occurs, by the Son. It may not be immediately apparent to us, but when you go out of here and you look around at the sky and the clouds and the trees and the squirrels and everything else, that is there only because it is being upheld at every single instant in time by the word of Christ's power. There's your natural theology, your, your general revelation that John talked about with his little globe. The work of the Son in redemption in verse 3. Having made purification for sins. Okay. What is that referring to? 
that we're all forgiven. How? Oh, through his death on the cross. But purification for sins. What does the word purification bring to mind? What? Cleansing? Washing? You're a first century Jew. What does purification for sins involve? Sacrifice. Thank you. Okay. Jesus is the sacrifice that takes care of sins completely. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does that indicate about Jesus? Still in control, but what is he doing? For whom? For us. But what does that make him? Who else intercedes for the people with God? What? The Holy Spirit. No, but I'm talking about in a human community, what is, who is the person who intercedes for the people? The priest. This is going to be the next great theme that we will find in the letter to the Hebrews. You cannot overemphasize the importance this will have for the letters of the Hebrews. That Jesus himself is the perfect sacrifice and our great high priest. Creation, revelation, redemption, it all comes by the Son. All right, never mind, that's next week. Okay. Any questions at this point? Because it's now 1020. Questions, comments? I wanted to get to the other page that you were given, which is page 15 of John's handout. And so if I guess if I had homework for you, it would be to take that page 15, which takes passages from Hebrews, and then in the Older Testament it gives the passages which the letter to the Hebrews is in fact citing as you move through this first section of the letter to the Hebrews. And I want to ask you basically to ponder two questions. Oh, that's too simple. Okay. Why all the talk about angels? Okay, that's really the main question. Why all the talk about angels? And also, why these passages? Older Testament passages. Okay. Could I say one thing? Uh, if on our podcast website you can listen to this, uh, we'll ha- we have the, the handout to download. And I actually took notes so you got the PowerPoint. 
if anybody wants to go visit that, it would be useful. cpc.podbean.com. cpc.podbean.com. 